Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. We start with a new twist in the battle over gun control, taking a page from a new Texas law that allows private citizens to sue abortion providers. Governor Gavin Newsom says he's ordered his staff to help draft state legislation that would allow people to sue the firearms industry for damages. Under Newsom's proposal, which was tweeted out over the weekend, private citizens would be permitted to sue anyone who manufactures distributes or sells an assault weapon or ghost gun kit or parts in the state of California. Plaintiffs could seek up to $10,000 per violation. Newsom says the threat of private lawsuits is the most efficient way to keep devastating weapons off the streets. The governor says he turned to this legal strategy to go after the gun industry after the U.S. Supreme Court allowed a ban on abortions in Texas after six weeks to remain in effect, with enforcement of the ban coming from private citizens filing lawsuits. A landmark California law aimed at lowering prescription drug prices has been put on hold by a federal judge. KQED's health correspondent April Dombosky explains the law was meant to prevent drug companies from doing so-called pay-for-delay deals. Here's what typically happens. A drug patent lasts 20 years, and during that time, drug makers can charge whatever they want. When the clock runs out, generic drug makers can step in and compete by charging way less. But drug companies have been using a workaround. They'll offer to pay generic drug makers to hold off on releasing their cheaper versions. It's a win-win. Generic makers get money that they would have made anyway, while the brand name gets more time to charge monopolistic prices. These are known as pay-for-delay deals, and two years ago, California passed a law making them illegal. But now a judge has suspended the law, saying the attempt to regulate the California drug market could have an unfair impact on the drug market in Delaware or other states. He said that would violate the interstate commerce protections in the Constitution. Drug companies celebrated the decision, while state officials said the case is still in its early stages and that they believe the law will ultimately be upheld. For The California Report, I'm April Dimboski. 
Hundreds of criminal cases could be in jeopardy following an investigation by the Los Angeles Times into racist and homophobic text messages sent by several police officers who work or worked for the Torrance Police Department. Torrance is a suburban community of about 145,000 residents in South L.A. County. State Attorney General Rob Bonta has now launched an investigation. The California Report's Keith Mizuguchi spoke with L.A. Times reporter James Queeley about his investigation. I started looking into this in August when the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office announced criminal charges against two now former Torrance police officers. They had alleged these two men spray painted a swastika in a vehicle that was towed from the scene of a mail theft they responded to. So they charged those officers with conspiracy and vandalism. And during gathering evidence for that case, they found out that there was a litany of racist text messages, images shared by those officers and others they were in communication with. So the, the DA's office at the time and the Torrance police made public that there were possibly hundreds of cases jeopardized or under review, that there were a lot more officers involved, and that there was clearly this cache of horrible commentary out there somewhere but Police Officer Bill of Rights, uh, integrity of that investigation, probably some of the search warrant results are under seal. They weren't making any of that public, so I started trying to figure out how that could happen and was able to, you know, through various means, get access to some of what was said and the names of many of the officers either accused of sending or sharing those messages or under investigation for at least being on those text threads and was able to make that public. Currently, of the 13 officers I named, all of the Torrance police officers that I named in the story either are no longer with the agency. The two that were the subject of that initial criminal investigation left the department in 2020, and the rest are on administrative leave. And we don't have to necessarily go into the the actual text themselves, but they didn't spare anyone, really, and they were very, very incendiary. Yeah, that it was a wide range of insults. You're talking about memes or images, pictures with captions that would just be vile depictions of possibly, you know, violence against black men or women. There was uh, someone shared instructions on how to tie a noose, a picture of a stuffed animal being lynched inside of the Torrance Police Department's headquarters, or at least that's how it was described to me, was shared. One officer claimed he would be sent to internal affairs and would punch a member of the LGBTQ community if he was forced to work with somebody of that sexual orientation. There were jokes that were anti-Semitic, even made reference to the Holocaust. Nobody was um, exempt from these comments, at least from what I've been able to uh, corroborate. And a number of cases have already been thrown out involving these officers, but they're they're looking at quite a few more, correct? Right. So the Torrance City Attorney's Office has dismissed about 50 misdemeanor cases where these officers either were the arresting officers or would have been a witness. And that is largely because they're unavailable to testify because they're on administrative leave. Additionally, the DA's office has dismissed about 35 felony cases involving these officers. Again, generally speaking, it would be a case where they were a material witness. Say it was a, a, a gun possession arrest and this was the officer who found the weapon. I'm oversimplifying, but that's probably the easiest example. How broad this goes will be a question. I did obtain through public records requests a list of cases for each officer I named in which they were a potential witness. That number of cases is around 1,400. 
It is not likely that 1,400 cases are about to be dismissed by the DA's office. Those lists don't nece- doesn't necessarily mean the officers testified in those cases. doesn't mean they were necessarily the lead or investigative officer. doesn't mean they were the arresting officer. But a portion of those cases certainly could be at risk at well if, as, as well if same situation, right? The officer was a material or critical witness to the case. Obviously, their credibility could be in, in uh, serious jeopardy. That was James Queeley, who covers crime and policing for the L.A. Times. James, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. The L.A. County Board of Education will vote tomorrow on a proposal that would delay the vaccination deadline for L.A. Unified School District students. The deadline had been for students 12 and older to be fully vaccinated by January 10th. But if approved, the new deadline would be the start of the school year in the fall of 2022. More than 86% of students have received at least one shot, but more than 30,000 are either unvaccinated or filed for an exemption. Those students would have been forced to enroll in the district's independent study program, which is already overwhelmed. Los Angeles Times education reporter Melissa Gomez spoke to parents and teachers with the program. They've increased staffing, they've brought in more teachers, but a lot of teachers that I've spoken to said that there's still a lot of disorganization in the program and that makes it hard for them to do their jobs. Melissa Gomez says the massive influx of students participating in independent study this year has been especially hard for students most in need. For a lot of students with disabilities, you know, maybe going back to school was not really an option because of their medical needs or medical conditions. And so for a lot of these families, they are struggling to get the services or accommodations that come with their specialized education plans. If the plan is approved, the later deadline would more closely align with the state's vaccination mandate, which would go into effect no earlier than July, and only after the vaccine receives full approval from the FDA for those who are 12 and older. In the early days of the COVID pandemic, Congress passed the CARES Act, a more than $2 trillion aid package meant to provide an economic lifeline to the many Americans whose world got turned inside out by the pandemic. This legislation led to the sending out of stimulus payments, which have since been expanded and add up to on average $3,200 a person. But as the California Report's Mary Franklin Harvin found out, one group of Californians is still struggling to get what they're due nearly two years later. Last year, Robert Abeto was incarcerated at Santa Rita Jail in Alameda County, charged with assault with a deadly weapon. 
I, you know, was just in the wrong place at the wrong time and really could have gotten out very quickly if I had the financial resources. Abeda says he was completely broke at the time of his arrest and unable to post bail. The thing is, there were resources available to him that could have changed his life. He just couldn't get to them. Even though we were eligible to receive those checks, the jail would not receive the checks. They would send them back, the checks or the debit card, didn't matter. They send them back to the Treasury Department. The checks Abeda is talking about were federal stimulus payments from the CARES Act. Abeda says he was locked up in Santa Rita for around five months. In California, it costs about $94 a day to house a jail inmate. So state taxpayers likely doled out over $14,000 to cover his time in lockup. Eventually, Abeda did get his stimulus money, so he was able to post his bail. His public defender says he's been able to use his time out of jail to start turning his life around, including enrolling in substance abuse and mental health programs and getting a job. Santa Rita Jail, for its part, is no longer sending back checks. But advocates say many behind bars are still waiting, and in some cases were actually punished for trying to get their money. We were hearing from people who said, I was sent to the hole, which is solitary confinement, because I tried to do this, or all of my correspondence about this has been confiscated. Yaman Salahi is a partner at Leif Cabraser Hyman and Bernstein in San Francisco. Shortly after the CARES Act was passed, the IRS determined that incarcerated people weren't eligible for the stimulus. So in May of 2020, the agency asked over 950,000 prisoners to return more than $1 billion worth of payments the IRS had already distributed. Prison authorities around the country took note of that and started to treat any attempt by somebody in their custody to apply for or obtain those funds as some form of misconduct. Salahi's firm helped bring a class action lawsuit to get incarcerated folks the payments they were due from the government. The IRS lost the suit. But even after that, people like Robert Abeda faced added obstacles to getting their support. Imagine trying to get through to the IRS from a jail with no internet access and limited phone use. All this said, Abeda and many others seeking out this money have committed serious crimes. So many people may not be sympathetic about them struggling to get their money. But Nick Gregoratos, who runs a unique program that provides legal services to people in San Francisco jails, notes that 99% of the people here in our jail right now are are not convicted of a crime. They're waiting, awaiting trial. He says those waits have gotten even longer during the pandemic. And his colleague, Nubia Aguilera, says the people locked up aren't the only ones who stand to benefit from these funds. I know a lot of them have been you know, filling out release forms to let that money go to family. One of those inmates is Vincent Jacobo. Jacobo, who is awaiting trial on a murder charge, says he didn't want the money for himself. The only thing I would do is spend it all on commissary. So I released it to a friend of mine here and he put it in Western Union and I sent it down to help my kids. Jacobo's daughter and grandchildren live in Southern California. When he finally got his money, Jacobo says, they were able to pay down bills and rent. I was just happy that I could help him because I've never done anything for him before in my life. So it was, yeah, I was happy I could do something for him. There are currently around 150,000 people incarcerated in California. Salahi says it's unclear how many who are eligible for the stimulus money still haven't gotten it. But nearly two years after the CARES Act was passed, 
Salahi says his office is getting questions almost daily from folks who still haven't gotten their money. For The California Report, I'm Mary Franklin Harbin. And one point of disclosure, we'll note that the law firm mentioned in that story, Leaf, Cabraser, Hyman, and Bernstein, is a sponsor of KQED, the producer of this show. And that's this edition of the California Report for Monday, December 13th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening. And there's a lot of rain and snow in store for much of California this week. So be careful out there. Support for the California Report comes from Real California Milk, reminding listeners to take three simple steps to recycle gallon milk jugs. Pour it, cap it, Bennett. Learn more at RecycleTheJug.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, focused on finding exceptional people and helping them do more for others together. On the web at SchmidtFutures.com. And the California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org slash health dash equity. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.